Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Mohammed Hamadi, CEO of Amanat, a healthcare and education-focused investor headquartered in Dubai and operating across the GCC. Thanks for joining us, Mohammed. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Rahul. So before we dive into Amanat, let's begin with you as an individual. I'm sure the listeners would love to know more about how Mohammed Hamadi became Dr. Mohammed Hamadi. Share with us a little on your formative years in your childhood. Well, it, it all started when, like many aspiring children, they want to become doctors. So I wanted to become a physician and I pursued my medical degree in, in the American University of Beirut. It's where I grew up for the first 24 years of my life. And after that, I continued within the medical field. I moved to Boston in the U.S. I joined Harvard Medical School to pursue ENT surgery. At that time, uh, I realized that while thinking you've reached a peak on the medical or the sciences side, I realized that I knew very little about the business world and very quickly became to a realization that actually business rules the majority of the activities across various industries, including the medical industry. So that was intriguing enough, pushed me to pursue a master's in business administration in Cornell which was one of the nicest uh, experience in my life as a university, as an interaction, the network that I built there and I continue to interact with. Soon after Cornell, I joined Booz & Company, worked in the healthcare consulting space, consulting for mainly national ministries of health or other governmental entities, as well as private sector. That has provided me with a skill set and the market knowledge and access that I integrated together and positioned myself as a private equitier uh, focused in on healthcare investments. I grew through the ranks quickly, I would say relatively, becoming a chief strategy officer and a chief investment officer in one of the largest healthcare networks in the region with more than 25 hospitals and 100 clinics. And afterwards invested into Amanat and became the chief investment officer of Amanat, and as of last month, the chief executive. So it has been a quick but diversified journey from Lebanon to the US to Dubai, covering medical field and then consulting as on the advisory side and then on the principal investment side. So this so is- when you left the, the Middle East to go pursue your education in the US, is coming back to the Middle East something that you always had at the forefront of your mind or was it more opportunistic at that time? That's a great question. It, it's a combination of both. It wasn't a must. As a matter of fact, when I was in Cornell and applied for jobs, I only applied for Booz & Company in the Middle East, and all the other applications went for other consulting firms in the U.S. But at that time, after interacting with the potential employer and the candidates there, I realized that in the Middle East, I might be exposed more in-depth certain projects, whereas in the U.S. it's more in breadth. And I was driven more to go in depth and get into the Middle East. And, and that was the main driver. Frankly, at that stage, I thought I'll spend a few years over here and then go back to the U.S. But here I am. It's been 10 years. So moving on to Amanat, the fund is listed on the DFM, has 5 billion dirhams of authorized capital, 2.5 billion dirhams of paid up capital, and 2 billion dirhams of deployed capital. For those to whom this structure may sound esoteric, 
what are the mechanics behind how Amanat actually operates? Great. So Amanat actually is a unique platform. In a sense, you can compare it to a SPAC model in the U.S., where funds are raised on the back of a pipeline of projects and not underlying assets. We've raised, uh, as you mentioned, 2.5 billion dirhams, which is equivalent to just less than 700 million U.S., And the premise of that was to allocate those investments in the education and the healthcare spaces. Back in 2014, and continues to be, it was on a priority list in terms of focus of the government in this region. Both sectors are defensive, are crucial. They constitute the basic infrastructure of any system, and they tend to be public systems. And at that time, the thought process continues till today by trying to support the private sector to penetrate these two sectors uh, in order to improve accessibility to healthcare and education, better quality of both sectors, and at a reduced cost or at a cost-efficient method. So that was the the premise. That's the, the model. It's not a private equity model. In a sense, we do not need to wind down a fund and return capital to LPs. We are a permanent capital vehicle. We are 100% floated in Dubai Stock Exchange, and our shareholders can monetize by trading their stock. And us as a management, we can invest in a permanent capital fashion. That said, we still strive for successful exits when the opportunity comes, but we're not bound by a timeline, which is usually the case in, in a private equity fund where it has a certain lifetime for a vintage of fund, we do not have that restriction. And that tends to come in quite handy in sectors such as healthcare and and education, because they tend to be of a longer life cycles. And on the point of the exits, I do want to get to that in a bit, given the environment that we're in, derivative of the global pandemic. But your three investment verticals, social infrastructure projects, platform investments, and corporate ventures includes names such as Sukun, the Royal Hospital for Women and Children in Middlesex University, Dubai. What are you looking for in a target when you're evaluating a potential investment and what type of ownership structure are you looking for? Great question, Raul. Our portfolio constitutes of seven companies, four of which are on the education side and three are on the healthcare side. On the healthcare, we focus on hospitals primarily, so providers. And on the education, we focus on schools and universities. So we have a network of 10 schools under one holding company and two universities, Middlesex University, Dubai Campus, and Abu Dhabi University, as well as the real estate of North London Collegiate School. This is our current portfolio. Besides the real estate, on the business side, we look for IRRs of 15% or above. We, We have a preference to owning an influential stake so long as we're an active investor, able to be an active board member and sit on the committees and growth initiatives and create value, then we're, we're satisfied. In certain instances, if we tend to go like the Royal Hospital for Women, it was more of a startup, we own 70% of that. So we tend to own majority stakes if it's an early stage and influential stake of an existing platform. That said, We continue to learn and refresh and evolve our strategy driven by market dynamics and needs and and global trends. We are in a pivotal stage now, especially with COVID and what's happening 
in the world. So we're revisiting this, and a couple of themes emerged. One is related to the digital space. So both sectors, healthcare and education, are undergoing quite a bit of disruption globally by technology. That's pre-COVID, and it was accelerated during COVID. So digitizing healthcare and, and education, it's an area that we have not looked at in the past, but we are very keen into playing a, a leadership role in those spaces. So globally, we've seen the rollout of investment almost across majority of the investment markets in terms of digital healthcare when it comes to telemedicine, telehealth. Even in the US, we're seeing it on the veterinary side now where people can't take their pets into the doctors. And on the education side, obviously, pre-COVID, we had, you know, this advent of the ed tech, which had a boom for a while, died down for a little bit after that. You have platforms such as Coursera and whatnot operating in the U.S. For the companies that you have in your portfolio, strategically, how does the rollout of those tools look going forward? I'm assuming the S-curve kind of got pulled a little bit forward in this case because of COVID. Great. So when it comes to our portfolio and their ability to adapt or evolve or adjust to the new norm, we have done quite a good job during COVID, I believe. On the healthcare side, initiatives such as telemedicine and remote consultations have been in the works for a couple of years now. And they were never implemented for regulatory reasons or for reasons related to the insurance coverage. All of that got resolved within two weeks' time. This is the only the good side of COVID. It has actually accelerated the integration of these tools into existing companies. So in an international medical center in Jeddah, we already rolled out our telemedical consultations. We're seeing patients, insurance is paying for that. And that has allowed us to at least bridge a bit of the losses that we've incurred during the COVID time because it was complete curfew, elective procedures were halted. So that has allowed us to continue to see our patients and prescribe procedures and medication. On the education side, we almost immediately shifted into remote learning on the K-12 and the university. The more senior you are in education, the easier it is to adopt technologies. So university students, it was fine with the exception of classes that are lab-based or practical-based. Everything else just I would say continued as as normal or even better. On this K-12 side and the secondary and, and late primary school years, again, same thing. It required a bit of onboarding on the technology and, and all of that. Where the trouble was and continues to be is the earlier years where homeschooling becomes the job of the mother or the father as well as the teacher. And that is continues to be a challenge that we're working through. And our assets, our portfolio companies are working with technology providers on integrating that. But that said, I think beyond the applicability of these tools into our portfolio companies, my view is the way we know healthcare today and the way we know education today, or we knew it, will be very different over the next three to five years. We're not talking about 10 and 15 and 20 years. I'm talking about three to five years. The way you and I used to think we can go and visit an emergency room and just get prescribed this and that and do a procedure and the insurance is covering, I think there will be a big shift in, in the mentality of how healthcare will be provided. It will be digitized. 
the efficiencies will be realized. You will have a lot more access than what we've had before. You will have a lot of options and variety of providers. If you want to see a doctor, you don't need to go directly to a hospital. You can go into the app and see a doctor virtually anywhere in the world and get the consultation that you require. And you can get prescribed a medication and it comes to home literally on the same platform, on the same application. I think that said, it doesn't replace the conventional healthcare. You will continue to need emergency rooms and you will continue to need operating theaters and ICUs, but you will only visit them when you absolutely need to. And I believe that would be a win-win formula for all stakeholders. Patients will have more access and a better quality of care. Providers will have a wider network of patients interacting with them and a wider traffic, and they will optimize their cost structure and their facilities and gear them to what's actually needed for a physical space. And the payers or the governments in certain instances will save a lot of money by providing such a a more efficient service. That's on the healthcare side. I don't want to take more of your time on the education side, very similarly, but there's a nuance there, which is in the education side, curricula are deferring. The whole approach to education is taking a shift towards the digital. And digital allows you to craft a new curriculum on how we educate our students and what talents we can unlock in the earlier years of their life and channel those talents where the person needs in his outer years of life when he becomes of a working age class. So in terms of unlocking value, given the context that we have of COVID right now, does that change Amanat's investment strategy going forward? And if so, what opportunities have you seen pop up during this age which you would be interested in investing in? So yes, this obviously has an impact on our strategy. And as I mentioned, we are widening or broadening our investment landscape to capture the potential value in the digital space when it intersects with healthcare and education. So health tech and ed tech will be of a core focus, as well as another area, which is the special situations kind of area, whereby there will be a lot of companies or targets that are operationally capable and strong. However, they are passing through a financially distressed phase and they require a new investor or a parent to back them up and allow their future prospects. And these two avenues, I think the digital and the special situations will, in addition to our current strategy, will be the focus of the next three years. In late May, Amanath unveiled a series of optimization initiatives to propel the company forward in an environment where we really don't know what things are going to look like six months out, let alone a year. The top priority mentioned was to increase top line and reduce costs. Given the environment that we're in and the economic importance of the two industries that you invest in, where and when do you expect to see this cost cutting? It started. It started because it's prudent during these times to revisit any fat within your cost structure. The first initiative we took in our institutions was one, you need to preserve your core assets, which are your people to a large extent. When it comes to doctors and nurses, they are your core asset in healthcare companies. Your teachers are your core asset in education companies. So that's the first thing we did. 
The second is whenever we felt there is a bit of redundancy or fat that exists from a headcount perspective, we try to direct it or redirect that to either more productivity to allow to keep those people in or reskilling and redirecting them to other functions within the organization. So if you feel given your top line, your staff cost as a percent of revenue is too high, then you might as well grow your top line as a first step. And, and this is the increase in productivity by rolling in new services, asking your staff to be a bit more proactive. Some of them decided to, to work extra hours and just to try to grow the top line. Because if you grow the top line, you continue to preserve the, the people that you have. So that was our first instinct, which is grow top line before you reduce bottom line. And uh, if, if all of that doesn't work, you look at cost-cutting initiatives in non-manpower first. So expensive leases, unnecessary GNA, you need to revisit. Uh, we worked very closely with the CFOs of each of our companies to look into optimizing working capital. It's extremely important. Cash became central piece. We are lucky that we did not have that problem because our companies tended to be well capitalized and in most of them, we had no debt. So it was easy to access debt. It was easy to come up with working uh, capital facilities from bank and then evolving debt. So that was the, the first intuition. If all of that doesn't work, of course, you have to come back to the drawing board and revisit other areas within your cost structure. And to end, what are your thoughts on the road to recovery for the UAE and how will Amanat play a role in that recovery? Look, I think the global approach varied on COVID. It has impacted the whole world, but <laughs> globally, you're right, certainly. And I believe where we are here, the initiatives that were taken tend to stand out. We, I think to a large degree, we've flattened the curve. We have been receiving communication very clearly. Despite the ambiguity around you, you have clear communication as to next steps. We're back to offices, we're back to work. The economy is, is, is coming back on, on track. So look, generally, I think while the whole world was, was impacted, governments that were prudent enough to take severe measures early on with a clear plan and a well-thought process tend to emerge stronger than others. And, and we, we are lucky in that, in that sense. That was Dr. Mohammed Hamadi, Chief Executive Officer of Amanat Holdings. Mohammed, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Raoul.